Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Date listeners. I'm Josh Popachak, the host of No Rain Date and the publisher of Sock and Source, here with the roundup of news for the week ending September 24th, 2021. Before I get into the roundup, I just want to say that I'm grateful to be back and refreshed after a week's vacation at the Jersey Shore. I know that No Rain Date and the News Roundup were in very capable hands with my producer, and right-hand man on this production, Johnny Hart. Last week, Johnny did a great job of keeping everybody informed and really helping run the show, literally and figuratively. So I thank him for that. We've had a lot of news this week in terms of groundbreakings and ribbon cuttings. So that's sort of going to be the focus of this relatively brief roundup due to the fact that we have a lengthy interview that I know you're going to enjoy. I'll start off by highlighting a ribbon cutting which took place at the Promenade Shops on Thursday. This was the latest business to open at the Upper Saucon Township Lifestyle Center and it's a unique one. AW or All Weather Cell Veg Denim Company was the business that opened. And this is a designer denim store that is really the brainchild of former NFL running back and Parkland graduate Andre Williams. Andre is, I think, only 28 or 29, but he's he's well known in the Lehigh Valley, of course, for his athletic prowess and his many accomplishments on the gridiron. He has turned his attention and his considerable talents to the world of fashion. And the end result is his company, AW Selvedge Denim Company, which has been in existence, I guess, for about five years. But this is his first brick and mortar store. So that's obviously very exciting for him and for the promenade shops. I was not familiar with Selvedge Denim. I had to research it a little bit when I first heard that he was going to be opening this store in Center Valley. Selvedge is a higher end type of denim. It's produced using different technology and it is a a more durable product, I believe. It's certainly a beautiful, attractive fabric. I also recently learned that although the technology apparently originated in the US, today much of Selvedge denim is produced in Japan. So there's a close association between Japan and this product, and that is highlighted a bit inside the store. It's a beautiful boutique-type store with colorful lighting on the ceiling. I sort of felt like I was in New York, maybe in the MTV studios, or a high-end nightclub or night spot. Very attractive design for the store. And since it is designer denim, these jeans are not exactly of the price range that you might find at your local big box store. But from what I understand, they last for a long, long time. Uh, Certainly if you buy a pair, uh, you're going to want to wear them religiously. I'd love to hear from anybody that 
that has bought a pair, maybe I'll put some on my Christmas list. But definitely the next time you're at the promenade shops, check out this new store. It's located next door to Evolve Salon and Spa. It's at the end of the complex near Red Robin and the AMC Multiplex. And the promenade shops has had a lot of vacancies in recent years. They have been filling more of them lately. This is, I think, the third opening in as many months. Recently, European Wax Center opened, which is a hair removal salon. And several other businesses have also opened recently at the promenade shop. So hopefully that trend keeps up. I know many of our readers and listeners will be excited to find out what else is coming at the pro- to the promenade shops. We'll be the first to tell you once we know. Right across the street from the promenade on Wednesday, there was another significant development. This was a groundbreaking for a new rehabilitation hospital that Good Shepherd Rehabilitation Network of Allentown is building. It's a pretty big deal. It's going to be 123,000 square feet, four stories with 76 private bedrooms when it opens, and that will be in early 2023. This will be the first freestanding rehabilitation hospital in the Lehigh Valley, according to Good Shepherd, and uh, will employ the latest technology. In addition to that, they're, they're going to innovate in some other ways. For example, this is being built on a 45-acre site, so there will be extensive gardens outside in which patients at the hospital can walk. Some of them use robotic-type skeletons to redevelop their mobility and one of those patients was on hand for the groundbreaking Wednesday. Her name is Ruth Aragon and it was very moving to see her walk up to the podium using one of these exo-robotic skeletons. I may not be using exactly the right term there but I believe that's what it's called and Good Shepherd of course is a major player in the rehabilitation field in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. They have been for more than 100 years. The bulk of their operations currently are in Allentown. So this will sort of shift the focus to the Center Valley area, which is prime for development. You have the promenade shops right across the street. Next door is the Homewood Suites Hotel. Down the road is the Stabler Corporate Center with numerous large businesses located there, Dun & Bradstreet, Olympus of America, and of course at the opposite end of Center Valley Parkway is the new Old Saucon development, and that will include retail commercial as well when that's completed. So Upper Saucon is once again seeing some development, sort of a tale of two Saucons, always with Upper Saucon seeing more of the development, Lower Saucon staying quiet on that front. They really couldn't be more different in that way. Sometimes I think if there was a Saucon in between the two of them, that would be perfect if the development was less than Upper Saucon, but more than Lower Saucon. Of course, it all depends on your perspective. Uh, Once you are a resident, you may want no development, or you may want the convenience of having stores close by and infrastructure like public water and sewer. Lower Saucon traditionally has not had a lot of that. Upper Saucon has. Of course, those are because of choices local government officials have made over the years, but largely uh, that is why 
there is much more development in Upper Saucon today. Finally, we reported on a major groundbreaking in the borough of Hellertown just the other day. This was the groundbreaking ceremony for a new public works facility, which will be built on the site of the former Reinhard School at Northampton Street and Magnolia Road. This project has been discussed for years. There was controversy, particularly in the beginning stages with neighbors from that immediate area opposed to any type of development of what is currently a vacant lot. That sort of seemed to subside a bit, although I understand from conversations I've had that many neighbors are still not thrilled with the fact that this is going to be built there, but they are obviously resigned to that fact. The plans were scaled back somewhat from what they initially were, and buffering will be created through the use of landscaping. Hopefully that will help minimize the impact that this has aesthetically and in other ways on the surrounding homes. I know that's what many residents of Northampton Street, Magnolia Road, East Saucon Street, and nearby streets are hoping. The groundbreaking ceremony itself, which was held Monday, was quite a function. There was music provided by the Saucon Valley High School Marching Band, and of course the traditional simultaneous turning of the shovels to uh, dig into the dirt to mark the beginning of this new chapter, which is of course very exciting for Hellertown government officials. The fact of the matter is that there has been a shortage of space at the Hellertown Borough Hall complex for many years. Moving the Public Works Department out of the so-called Stables Building to a new facility nearby will free up that building for use by the police department. And the police department has been facing a serious space shortage. So hopefully this will help improve the services that these departments provide to the residents of Hellertown. Certainly I know that's everyone's goal. And uh, we'll continue to follow the project as construction commences. And of course, when it's complete, we'll cover the ribbon cutting for Hellertown's new public works facility. That is our roundup for this week, and I want to wish everybody, of course, a happy start to fall. We're still seeing some warm temperatures around, but I think the cooler weather is knocking on our doorstep, and uh, we'll certainly be having some chillier nights come soon. So get those extra blankets ready, and we'll see you back here next week. Hey Panther fans, it's your friendly neighborhood coach Reef here with another scouting report for the upcoming Friday night football fight between the Saucon Valley Panthers and the Blue Mountain Eagles. The 1-3 Panthers return home to host the 2-2 two two Eagles. Kickoff is scheduled for 7 p.m. Blue Mountain earned themselves wins over Jim Thorpe and Banger. The Eagles put Jim Thorpe to rest 30-20 and beat up to best Banger 35-27. The Eagles fell 21-14 to North Schuylkill and were thumped 47-14 to Pottsville. The Panthers were also thumped by Pottsville two weeks ago in a mistake-laden contest by a 35-7 score. The Panthers currently hold a 1-3 record overall. In addition to the Pottsville loss, Saucon Valley lost to Notre Dame week 1, 47-20. 
Last week, Salkin fought with a whole lot of Panther pride, but lost a heartbreaker. The Panthers took the unbeaten Wilson Warriors to the wire, but fell in the final seconds, 24-22. Salkin Valley did have some success during week two of the season with a 31-14 win over Salisbury. Let's talk about Blue Mountain's offense against the Salkin Valley defense. Blue Mountain averages 23 points per game. Salkin Valley's defense gives up about 30. The Blue Mountain offense basically hinges on a three-man show. First is sophomore quarterback Will Johnson, who wears number 13. Johnson is listed at a slight 5'8", 148. He is 22 of 46, passing with 285 yards, three touchdowns, and three interceptions this season. He's not much of a run threat, as he is credited in the stat sheet with 31 carries for only 60 yards. Realistically, he's not too much of a pass threat either. Johnson throws, on average, 11 times per game and completes less than half with an average of about 12 yards per completion. Second is running back number two junior, James Seaman. He'll line up deep in the Eagles' shotgun pistol offense. He's more of a bruiser at 6'1", 185, averaging 6.5 yards per carry. Overall for the season, he's showing 42 carries for 274 yards and a touchdown. Third, we have sophomore running back number 29, Peyton Fosnacht. He is the lightning to Seaman's thunder. He's a diminutive 5'6", 124 pounds, but gets the job done, averaging 5.6 yards per carry. He has rushed 52 times for 292 yards, good for four touchdowns. It is a nice little one-two punch in the running game for Blue Mountain. Even though the spotlight shines on this trio of Eagles, it is the offensive line that makes this offense tick. Blue Mountain's boys in the trenches are led by the Bobbin Twins. I'm not sure they are twins, but they are seniors and they are both listed in a program at 6'3", 250. Jake Bobbin is number 61 and Ross Bobbin is number 75. The Eagles don't look to be too much of an explosive big play threat, but this offensive line will test the Panthers' defensive line. The Eagles will try to control the line of scrimmage and grind out first downs all the way to the end zone and no doubt try and repeat the process. What about Blue Mountain's defense against Saucon Valley's offense? The Eagles run a base 4-4 cover three defense. When they force you into passing situations, they will convert to a three-man front and drop seven or eight into coverage using a 3-4 or 3-5 scheme. They showed a little bit of cover, too, in those passing situations, but for the most part, they seem to prefer three deep. Gavin Gears, number 53, is the Eagles' leading tackler from his inside linebacker position. He is listed at 6'1", 220 pounds. Gears is also the Bobbin Boys' sidekick on that rugged Eagle offensive line. Fellow linebackers, number two, James Seaman, number 32, Owen Michael, and Kreese Stabline, number 20, each have 20 or more tackles so far this season for Blue Mountain. Sophomore defensive back, number 24, someone to look out for also. Tyler Miller is at 5'9", 134 pounds. He likes to get dirty, too, with his 20 tackles for the Eagles. Saucon Valley only averages 18 points per game so far, but rest assured that will increase over the course of the next few weeks. Seeing that Blue Mountain gives up an average of 28 points per game, the Panthers could very well break out with an offensive explosion. Saucon has a stable of talented and skilled playmakers on offense. And it all starts with number 12, Dante Mahaffey. He's a senior. This season, he is 32 of 60 for 477 yards passing. He has a 53% completion percentage. Dante averages about 120 yards per game and has three passing touchdowns that are offset by three interceptions. Rushing the ball, dual threat, Dante has 53 carries for 395 yards. That averages out to 7.5 yards per carry. Mahaffey has crossed into the end zone five times so far this season. He has proven this year to be a very tough tackle. Number 21, Damian Garcia, is back. He missed last week against Wilson, but is the Panthers' most productive running back. 
For his career, he has 217 carries for 1,630 yards. That's a 7.5-yard average. 13 touchdowns to go along with that. In limited action so far this year, he has 37 carries for 211 yards, which is good for 5.7 yards per carry. He has three touchdowns so far this season. Panthers also have number 11, Ty Sensitz. He's a playmaker closing in on 1,000 yards receiving. He has 954 yards heading into Friday night's game. This season, he has 14 catches for 237 yards, which is good for 13.6 yards per catch. He has one touchdown so far this season, which he got last week against Wilson. Let's hope Sensitz and Mahaffey can hook up and have a big night. Number three, junior Alex Magnata is also on Mahaffey's radar. Being 6'3 with great hands certainly helps to get on that radar. Magnata has 10 catches for 155 yards and a touchdown. Saucon Valley will rely upon their offensive line, including Cody Swinney, Caleb Laudenslager, Caleb Grimm, Greg Cohen, and Jack Marushak to protect Mahaffey and give him a little time to throw, as well as creating running lanes for Garcia and the other Panther runners. Owen Frederick, who was injured last week at Wilson, is questionable this week for Blue Mountain. He will be missed. So, it's going to be a great night for the Panthers to be back home in Hellertown after two consecutive road games. It will be Blue Mountain's turn to hit the highway and log the miles. Beyond keeping turnovers and penalties in check, the biggest key to the game for Saucon Valley is going to be in the trenches. If the Panthers can stiffen and not be methodically snowplowed by the Bob and Boys and Friends for three yards and a cloud of dust, then the Panthers should be able to find enough holes in the Eagle defense to put up enough points to win. Saucon Valley appears to have the more talented, skilled guys, so quality of the offensive and defensive line play is a big factor. Friday's looking good. It'll be a crisp and cool night. It'll be dry, and the temperature's currently forecast for the mid to low 60s throughout the game. Being dry and just a very light breeze, it will be a great night for some Panther football. Good luck, Panthers. The source is with you. This week on No Rain Date, for our guest, I am delighted to have a friend and a fellow Fountain Hill resident, Will Roof, who is a member of Fountain Hill Borough Council, but professionally, he is a chef and culinary operations chef for Northampton Community College, which has an acclaimed culinary arts program that we are going to talk about, of course, along with their restaurant, Hampton Winds, which recently reopened to the public and Salkin Source covered that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We first met a few years back before you were running for borough council, I think. That's correct. And I would see you walking around the neighborhood and you would say hi, but I wouldn't know it was you because it was dark. And <laughs> that's, that's, that's classic me, very creepy. Yep. <laughs> but then I found out you're not creepy and you're, you're really talented in the kitchen too. And you have like thoughts about food that are I love food. I mean, I'm chubby enough that you can see that. I mean, hopefully that comes across in the podcast, but um, <laughs> yeah, I love food. I absolutely love food. Never trust a skinny chef. That's true. That's true. That's the secret code. Well, I want to talk about everything you're doing at Northampton Community College in terms of your work as an instructor. But before that, I want to go back in time and learn more about like who sort of influenced you in terms of your food philosophy, what were some of your early experiences in the kitchen? So I have a really funny story. Everyone has like the, the classic chef story that you hear is, oh, my grandmother made the best pasta and she had the most amazing tomato sauce. It was incredible and I've never had food like that. I'll start by saying it. that was I was the complete opposite. I had 
my grandmother was insanely Irish, and my my mother was half Irish, half French, which you think would be a great combination, but neither one of them could cook their way out of a paper bag. <laughs> so I grew up eating pretty pretty standard fare, nothing really really ex- you know extraordinary or anything really out of the box. And fast forward to high school, I was lazy and I just wanted to enjoy my summer. And you're supposed to apply for your electives, you know, before you leave for you know the summer. Or worst case scenario, you can send them in a little mail, you know, say, hey, I want to take photography, and they put you in. They called me a week before, you know, whatever year high school it was, and said, hey, you didn't sign up for any electives. I'm like, yeah, I'll just take ceramics or something. They're like, ceramics got booked out, like, in May, dude. There's no way that you can do this. So I said, what can I have? And they said, well, there's two options. You can have a study hall, or you can have International Foods East and International Foods West. And I said, I am going to get into a lot of trouble if I have a study hall, because there's no way I ever show up. And I'm not, it's, it's, it's not going to count as a class for me. So I said, why don't you put me in International Foods East and West? And my first day there, everyone's talking and doing their thing. It's a class of 30, and my teacher's completely, like, overwhelmed. And I read through the recipe packet, and I'm seeing how everything is laid out. You know, at the top, there was the title, Braised Red Cabbage, and then how many people it served, and the preparation time that was active and the preparation time that was passive, and then ingredients, and then protocols. And I'm like, this whole thing is just protocol. This whole thing is just scientifically based. This, this is easy. Mm-hmm. So I read through it, and I just started working while the teacher was lecturing and doing her thing, and my group was messing around. And by the time I was done, we still had half the class left over. And she was really confused, and she's like, have you ever cooked before? And I was like, absolutely not. I don't enjoy it, you know. <laughs> and she said, I'm a little overwhelmed. Her name was Mrs. Tellis. She just retired. Mrs. Tellis. I think I had her. Really? Well, well I had a Mrs. Tellis when I was Her in... name was Lynn Tellis. Yes. Yeah, yes. that was her. She was my teacher, too. Wow. <laughs> so she said, this class is so big. Would you mind just... If I gave you the packets the night before, would you would you kind of guide your, your group so I can understand that, like, six people are kind of just taken care of? And I'm like, I don't care. It's easy. Everything's just protocols. And I had come from... <laughs> Things like I had learned to to code websites when I was like really, really young. We we were one of the first people to have the internet, like probably in Fountain Hill or Eastern PA, whatever. My dad did all this network stuff. Uh So I had been writing code and stuff like that. And all this just made sense to me. So I did this whole semester doing these classes and it was a ton of fun. And at the end of it, she, she said, hey, have you ever thought about going into culinary arts? And I was like, absolutely not. I'm going to be an architect. And she said, well, have you taken any classes on architecture or CAD drawing? And I was like, no, not really. <laughs> she said, you know, you're really kind of late to the game. Why don't you just try doing the culinary thing? I'd be happy to write you a letter of recommendation for the Culinary Institute of America. And she wrote it for me and everything. And I thought it was just, it was crazy. Just what a crazy idea. And then that summer, I had a job offer to go work somewhere. I can't even remember anymore. And... I got into a kitchen and it was, it was just nuts to me. It was like, they work with food in a way because like you, know, you you have a picture of in your head of like the the old grandma over the stove stewing a stew and rolling mm-hmm. out a pie dough, and then you get into a restaurant and it's completely different. It is all about fabrication and and plating and everything is precise and duplicatable and repeatable. And I thought to myself, this actually might be something. Mm-hmm. And I took I took two years off and worked in the industry and decided I was going to go to Northampton Community College. I got into a car crash and I totaled my car. It's about six months out, and they sent me a check in the mail. And I said, you know what? 
I'm going to throw it right into my tuition. I paid for all of my uniforms, all of my knives, and my tuition, and I just threw myself headfirst into it. And then fast forward to 2021, it's like the best thing that ever happened to me. Wow, that's awesome. So was Mrs. Tellis, was she at Liberty, or? No, she actually, oddly enough, she had transitioned into working at Northampton Community College. Oh, okay, So okay. one day, I got an email, I don't know what it was about, something, we get 10,000 emails a day about the most tedious things. And she was copied on it. And I'm like, there's no way it's the same person. So I emailed and I said, are you Lynn Tellis that used to work at Liberty? And she goes, oh my God, Will, don't tell me you work here. And I was like, she remembers me? So I met her the one day. She was at Jenny's Kowali eating. I just, I saw her at the corner of my eye. I'm like, Mrs. Tellis. And she's like, we work at the same place. You can call me Lynn. And we talked for about an <laughs> hour. And she had no idea that she was the one that, that got me to go into this. She had no idea. And then when I, I said, like, I'm running an event with you in two months, you know, she was working with uh, community ed or continuing education, and I was working with the culinary staff to get this whole thing moving. We were like counterparts. And she told me about like, how proud she was and how amazed she was. Like, she had no idea. And I, I, it, was, it was so funny to me. And sometimes maybe like the, the person that lit that spark inside of you, that, that was your big influence, they might not even be aware of it. So mm. she had no idea I even became a chef. She thought I became an architect because that's what I told her. <laughs> wow. So, that's that's crazy. Yeah, I have I've I've had a few run-ins like that myself over the years and it's always fun to to meet somebody that that influenced you and never knew and then like I, I not long ago I ran into my third grade teacher, Mrs. Brown from Fountain Hill Elementary and and she was one of my favorite teachers and, and really encouraged me as a at that young age in terms of writing and yeah. you know to find out that she was like a regular reader of Sock and Source just, you know, warmed my heart, really. So That's amazing. Yeah. And what you were saying, too, about um, how cooking at home for a family as part of a family tradition is so different from oh, cooking yeah. at scale for, you know, an audience, really. That reminded me of a documentary I, I recently watched where they, they kind of they kind of talk about that. It's, it's all about Pennsylvania diners, and it's actually from the 1990s, but it's a really good documentary, and, you know, they, they visit different diners and sort of look at, like, how they do what they do, and one is, like, the Melrose Diner in Philly, which I guess was, like, incredibly automated, and they came up with all these different systems mm. for producing, like, their apple pies and... They interviewed one of the bakers, and they're like, you know, do you, you know, do you go home and bake? And he's like, no, because, you know, it's it's totally different, you know. It, it, there's a, there's a huge chasm between the two because when you think about like making mashed potatoes, you know, you make a mashed potatoes, you know, at home for your family. For let's say it's five people, you know, it's all done at mostly like at once, or you can keep it warm in the in the, in the oven. But imagine having to make mashed potatoes for somebody who might not come in until eight o'clock or you have reservations at six or five. Mm -hmm. It's not going to last for three hours. So you need to like you know, make things in batches and replenish or hold them at a, a temperature that's not prohibitive to their quality. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different ball game. You know, we, we, we cut things and we, we do a thing called mise en place, which means everything in place in French. And we mise en place our stations out, or you'll, you'll hear me yell at students, everyone, is, is your mise ready? And it's, it's all about, like, if someone walks in the door right now, are you ready? Because everything has to be under a certain time limit, too. Because, like, when you're cooking for a family, like, you know, if it comes out at 6.15 or it comes out at 6.30, like, it's dinner. You know, if it's 6.08, if it's 7.30, it's dinner. But if someone comes in and orders a strip steak medium rare, 
and you give it to them an hour later, you, you lost a customer 100%. I mean, they, they probably walked out the door halfway through. So you have to kind of get things ready, you know? We have to have things, you know, we, we teach our students about prioritizing big projects first, you know, small projects second. So we have, it's something that take you a long time, making a soup, you can do that first thing when you get in your shift. Or maybe the night before you get things ready by you know cutting your rutabagas or turnips or carrots or celery, having it into a thing. So the next morning you don't have to come in and cut the things, you just go ahead right into sauteing. Mm-hmm. And that's all about mise en place. I, right now, we just finished up a class called American Regional Cuisine, and the big thing that I wanted to teach with, it's their first time cooking on a line. And I, I told them one word that you need to remember in this, and I'm going to keep hearkening back to it, anticipation. You have to anticipate your needs and the customer's needs before they get here because they're sleeping right now or, or, or they're out sipping tea on their back porch, but tomorrow they're going to come here and they need a turkey sandwich or they need pierogies or they need a prime rib, something like that. Mm-hmm. And everything that we can do today for that is going to help us tomorrow. Yeah. It's all about anticipation. Whereas like the family dinner thing, you know, you pull some stuff out. Oh yeah, you know, I watched the thing. Maybe it's a good recipe for stroganoff and you figure it out. But there's, there's no figuring it out last minute. When, when somebody walks in, you know, you have a 15 minute timer. That's it. So I mean, we do, we, we do 10 minutes maximum for appetizers, 15 minutes maximum for entrees. And that's not a long time for a lot of people. So so like what do you do say say like there's a couple dining and like one one person orders like a steak and they want it like well done almost like a charcoal briquette and the other person is ordering salmon you know that doesn't take long to cook Mm -hmm. and like you have to serve both of them at the same time so that must be a little bit of a balancing act so I will say I just told my students the other day too I'm I'm so glad that we're talking about this now because it's still fresh in my mind but every cook on the line that is manning a station they're playing an instrument you know if it's a cello you know sometimes you know they need you know there's it's a little bit of it's some cod and some butter sauce so it needs to be really light dun, 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 dun. and other times they really need to steer the halibut really really hard and push it because you know our entrees are going out soon throw it in the hot oven as fast as you can that's really dig it in dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. and the person behind the line which is me i do expo which is basically like bringing things together i'm the conductor so I don't really touch food. I don't, I'm, my whole thing is, I say, hey, Sarah, what's the temp on that steak right now? She'll say, I'm at 135. All right, cool. Hey, Nick, you can't start that salmon yet. You know, Get your pan hot, get it ready, make sure your garlic's out, and I'll come back to it in a second. Hey, over here on pantry, they're gonna need five more minutes. Can you send out some free salads real quick? They'll make up a Caesar salad, because it only takes a minute. Well, so let's send out small portions so that they think that we're just gonna give them something a little special just to make, make them feel good, you know? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, it's buying me of another five or six minutes. You know, I can kind of so I'm just hitting you know with the conductors, the, the stick or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. dun dun dun, just conducting the whole thing. That's the whole idea is that you need someone to kind of focus all that energy. So when someone you know Sarah says, steak's coming out at 148, it just needs to rest. I need two minutes. Cool. Over here, you have your steak, you, know, you have your your salmon in your pan. Yes, chef. All right, I need you to flip it, start poiling with butter, and throw it into the oven. You know. And I need everybody up in the window in two minutes. And usually, everything comes up in the window within about 10, 15 seconds of each other, if, mm. you, did, if you did it correctly. And the, even the best part is, everything goes out of the window in another 10 seconds. So hopefully you get your steak piping hot. I guess if you like it well done, you know, <laughs> I'd shout out to people who like well done steaks. <laughs> and your salmon goes out, you know, at the same time. Because the idea is that Nobody wants to sit there and watch somebody eat their salmon while their steak is cooking away in an oven. They're just sitting there looking at a napkin saying, I wish this was a steak, you know? Right. 
everything has to hit the table. What we do at Hampton Winds and our uh, front of the house manager, Karen Winans, she's amazing. She is constantly talking about the idea of like, you're not really serving food, you're curating an experience. You know, it's, it, it's not just a steak and a salmon, it's their anniversary. It's the third time they've been here this month and they absolutely love the way that we do our Leonese potatoes. Okay, well, so that's much more intricate than, this is a two top and they want a well done steak and a salmon. You know, that's not how we serve things at Hampton Winds because it's our job to teach our students how to do things the right way, you know, there's other restaurants out there that are not going to do it the right way, and they're they're going to see every ticket as just some dollar signs and some and some minute markers, you know, to how long has it been in there, and is it early, late? We don't do that because I can teach you how to cook quickly, I can teach you how to chop onions, I can teach you how to blanch broccoli, but I can never teach you how to love food. And if you can't love food in that perfect environment, it's just not for you. So mm-hmm. we give them an environment that they can see how things kind of roll in the perfect sense. So when someone sends back a steak. You're not going to see me yell and say, this person's completely wrong. It's, it's not about that. You know, these guys came in for an experience, and it's our duty, our obligation, to give it to them. At the end of the day, we're a service industry, and I was working at Bolite for a couple of months, and I learned that 100% full well. We had a guy in the dining room sit down with a wife and kids. At Bolite, you know, I, I've never seen kids there, but whatever. And the server comes back and says, hey, this guy... His kids won't eat anything but chicken fingers. You have any chicken fingers here? And I'd been there for about, I don't know, two months. And I said, this is Boli. We don't have chicken fingers, you know? And Chef Lee Chismar and the sous chef Bullock both look at me and they say, "If you, you know, do we have chicken? Yes. Do we have eggs, breadcrumbs, the whole nine yards? And I'm like, yeah, but it's chicken fingers. And he said, "If this is a service industry. If you're not looking to serve, I don't know what you're doing here. And I, it blew mm-hmm. my mind. So he had me make chicken tenders on the fly in this amazing restaurant, and we sent them out. At the same time, we're sending out, you know, halibut with beluga lentils and braised leeks, and there was chicken tenders, and it goes out. And the server comes back a second time and says, kids won't eat the chicken tenders unless they have honey mustard. Do you have honey mustard? And sous chef... Yeah, those are kids after my own heart. Yeah, shout out to those kids. They're probably, like, they're probably 45 you by now. You gotta have but... honey mustard to go with chicken fingers. So the sous chef looks at me, and... He, he knows what the response should be. And instead of me throwing a fit, I say, yes, chef. Of, of course we have honey mustard. And we made it. Anyway, I, I disregard it. I go home and I giggle about it. No big deal. And the next day we find out that we had been tested. We had been, like, reviewed by the Philadelphia Inquirer. And wow. the, you know what the guy mentions? I brought a fake family with me. And I challenged the kitchen by saying I wanted chicken fingers and honey mustard. And you know what the funny thing was? If I was in charge of that kitchen, they would never would have got it. But I learned that day because I got burned because my ideology, my my philosophy on food, wasn't clicked into place yet. And theirs was. Doesn't even seem ethical in a way, though. Well, I mean, so to this, do this that, is this is like... Simon Laban. He's he used to be in New Orleans. He is like insanely secretive. He had to leave New Orleans because they had posted his face, and he wanted to be secret. So he moved to Flo- uh, to Philadelphia so he could maintain anonymity. And he's burned like a whole bunch of Emerald restaurants and stuff like that. Like he's he's been he's been That's very like critical. That's like a setup. Oh like, yeah. Yeah, I mean like secretive. Okay, but fake family. Like well, I don't because he he doesn't want anyone to know who he is. But that was real, and we got rated very very highly. I think the the total you can get four bells. I think we got three. We got one off of perfect, which is like in the Philadelphia area is great, but outside Philadelphia it never happens. And Bolit got it while we were there, and we he was. Chef Lee was ecstatic. 
Aaron, the other manager, his wife was ecstatic. The whole staff was just fireworks everywhere. And I realized in that day that my head needed to get wrapped around service. And ever since then, I never say no. If I can do it, if I can make you happy, that's my job. And I instill that in my students so that they don't have to make that misstep. So when someone comes in and says, hey, you got chicken nuggets? I'm never gonna hear a student say, no, we don't. Because if we have chicken and we've got breadcrumbs, I'm gonna make them. I'm, I'm not gonna be able to stop thinking about those chicken tenders now because like After I love Bolide's food so those are probably like the most epic chicken tenders they, like ever local locally sourced chicken with free-range eggs and breadcrumbs that we made from our own bread so like yes it was they were great but they were just kids so they they, they probably thought they were pretty okay <laughs> well what you say about Bolide is absolutely true and I think that's been well documented during the especially the recent challenging times for restaurants Due to COVID-19, they created a village really outside the restaurant mm. so that people could feel, could be safer while they were dining out. And certainly that wasn't an easy thing to do given their location and, and just yeah. many, many other challenges. I would say, if I, could, if I could just like give them a critique, I've always said that their whole team is like literally superheroes. Whatever you see them doing, they're doing more behind the scenes. Like they, they're grinding their own meat and they're making their own breadcrumbs and they're used to doing stuff like that in a building that was built in like 1786, no less, in a kitchen that's smaller than this room. But at the same time, they could have just as easily said, you know, we're just gonna go to takeout. It's just gonna be easier that way. We're gonna do it family styles. So we don't have to do so many reservations. It's no big deal. They could have had an easy time through COVID. But they built that village, they got set up, they got the outdoor bathrooms to guarantee people like, a, a, an awesome space to just not have to worry about things. And people could be isolated, but they could spend time with their families. And again, they weren't just rickety sheds that were like, that looked bad. They had decor and people were signing the walls and talking about their experience. And by the time it was done, it was a living thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't praise them enough for what they did. It shows to me, it's like, a, it's innovation, but it's really an investment in community. Right. It, it was their resilience is just, just incredible, just incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I follow the local restaurant scene religiously, of course, and certainly other places have have innovated, mm-hmm. you know. But I don't, I don't think many did it to that scale, and you know, with that that amount of thoughtfulness put into it. So yeah, I, I really applaud them for that, and and it's just, I mean. Restaurants like that, I think, tend to be stereotyped as, you know, highly pretentious. Special occasion restaurants. Right. Yeah. I have not found that to be the case there. Very, you know, of course, excellent service, but nothing like haughty, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's not like a stereotypical haute cuisine establishment. I always like tell people like when they say, oh, I would never go there. That that, that, it's just it's just so pretentious. I I tell them they have a burger on the bar menu. They sell beers in actual bottles, and their servers wear jeans. Like, uh, servers have tattoos on their arms, fully exposed. Like, this is not like your standard white tablecloth, you know, you can't speak above three decibels place. You know, it's, 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 it's something different. They've been making this for years, and they, they could have picked anywhere in the world, but they, put, they picked that spot mm-hmm. with a small kitchen and a dining room whose floor is about as straight as my as my belly is um at one point in time i don't know if it's still the case but at one point in time none of the chairs matched in the dining room yeah it was very quirky and cool and you know what it it was just it was them saying we're we're here to feed you we're here to 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 show you what we can do and this all this peripheral stuff is just extra and we'll get to it when we get to it and i hope they never do because i i love it 
And Mr. Lee's is going to be opening up on Southside. I think it might be open up now. I just got some, uh, I got their soft opening stuff the other day. And again, it's delicious. Mm-hmm. I, just, I love what they do. And COVID specifically has become such a big thing that it really makes me want to support them even more just because COVID hit our industry really, really hard. And you have them, rather than pivoting, going the easy way and taking a vacation, which they would have well deserved and no one would have said anything about it, they leaned into it. They were saying the more takeout orders we can get, the more sheds we can fill up, that means the more people we can employ. And I'm telling you, I looked into their window one time and they had, people couldn't go into their dining room. So they had people setting up stations of cutting onions and cutting butternut squashes in the, the, the the living room and dining room. And to me, it's just, the dedication to what they do, they, they just want to serve people. They just want to make people happy. And I think that they really have been, especially since oh, yeah. COVID. The, the, and the thing I hear, too, or I heard when I would go there, it's been a couple of years, but, oh, it's so expensive, you know. But they're not, I mean, it's not expensive for the sake of being expensive. Like, the ingredients they're using locally sourced. Mm-hmm are costly ingredients you know mm-hmm. and and so you know the idea that they're price gouging people somehow is is ridiculous i, th- I think that we're Ill- currently in a very like a value-minded consumerism kind of stage where everyone is like looking for like the best price on things but you take a look at the way that we buy cars as americans is everyone understands that you have to haggle otherwise you're getting ripped off and when someone goes in that the halibut dish says $36 and they say, well, I can buy halibut at Wegmans for, for less than that. Well, of course you can. But like these guys are sourcing things in ways that are sustainable. They're buying from farms that are doing things the right way and they're taking care of their soil. And, you know, dirt is not soil. Soil is not dirt. They're used, it's real soil within their farms. And like they're like, to me, I think we should be addressing this in more like a, of like a holistic kind of thing. And... When, when you buy something at, at Bolit, you're supporting farms. You're, so, you're, you're supporting people who live in your neighborhood that are working there. And, you know, they start off as a, as a busboy or a barback or maybe a dishwasher. And next thing you know, like they're learning how to do things on a level that most restaurants, even in our area, are not doing. And I think it's raising the, the whole area up. And, I mean, I've, got, I've gone there and had inexpensive meals i've, I've had a, a burger or a lobster roll and a beer and walked out the door and felt great you know it's you don't have to go there and spend 12 billion dollars to have a good time right. i don't think anything there is expensive just to be expensive you know i right. think everything there is it's in its place you know and if you can only go there on a special occasion then so be it and if you're a little bit more well off or a little bit less financially stressed go there on a thursday and you know see what they have and maybe just get some apps and hang out I, right. I, I think it's a great place. And not only that, I mean, you know, what has driven prices down to pre-pandemic to like an artificially low level yeah. was, you know, the the supply chain that, that was developed. And we saw how that functioned during COVID. Collapsed. Yeah. So if more businesses adopted the Bolit model... You know, I don't think it would be as expensive as it is. No, yeah. I mean, like, you take a look at, like, when people were running out of, like, you couldn't get eggs in, in the supermarket, but the funny thing was I got my eggs from Happy Farms in Kittnersville. They never had a shortage, and their mm-hmm. eggs were better. You know, they are free-range eggs, and the guy said, my chickens, if they don't come at home at night, I don't call their parents. You know, like, they're allowed to stay out if they want, you know? They eat clover and bugs, and their egg yolks are deep orange, and they're great, you mm-hmm. know? 
I didn't have any problems with that. I mean, I, we don't have any local toilet paper distributors, so maybe that was an issue. But like, as far as food is concerned, I had no issues getting things. And I think if we started supporting things like with more emphasis on our on our on our neighborhoods and, and locality in general, I think we'd be a lot better off. You know, like why are we going to Wegmans and buying loaves of bread that have been trucked across from Rhode Island to here? Why aren't we buying from Hellertown mm-hmm. Bakery? Why, why aren't we getting stuff from Valos? Why aren't we, you know, why aren't we buying stuff around here? They're making it every day. Why does the drive-through at McDonald's have a wraparound line, but small businesses are closing all over the place? I can tell you why. It's value-based consumerism, and people think that value is the number one quality. This is the same reason why people don't eat a whole lot of vegetables, you know, and salads. It's because the salad is the same price as the burger or the pizza. Why would why would I ever eat a salad then? It's not as substantial, you know, in perception. So. And it's also incumbent upon the media to be asking questions sure. about about these things. I mean, I was just reading an article somewhere, and they were talking about Cisco and how many problems they're having because they can't find enough drivers because of the you know the truck driver shortage, and you know that's impacting a lot of things. You know, but that you know that relates back to the fact that we're not you know sourcing locally. Yeah, and you take a look at it, like a, a lot of people, I'm kind of on the front lines of this whole thing of, the big one is nobody wants to work anymore. Is I, I hear that constantly. <laughs> and so when people come and they post these, they, you know, we, we post any job offer that anyone has for any restaurant, we'll post it on, on one of our bulletin boards. And every student has access to it. And if they need references or letters of recommendation, we'll do them based on, you know, what their skill levels are objectively. And people come in and say, oh, no one works and wants to work anymore. And I, I just don't find that to be the case. I don't know any chefs who are currently unemployed and just sitting back and just hanging out. They have, like, a lot of them have moved on because of the way that they've been treated in the industry. And for a long time, it was, you know, low paid cooks in the line and buy everything cheap through Cisco or U.S. Foods. And everything was fine. Not a big deal. When COVID happened and everything kind of snapped and every, it, the spider web was all holding itself together. When you took off a couple of links, the whole thing just couldn't support itself anymore. And a lot of these people went elsewhere. And so now we have places like US Foods and Cisco and you know all the big purveyors. We don't have enough drivers, You know, no one wants to work. Well, the answer is that they, they move somewhere else. And again, to go back to that value you know, economy, Amazon picked up a ton of drivers, a ton of drivers. I mean, I, every time when I drive into work, I see, because I'm going down, what is it, Broadhead Road or whatever it is, I see probably two dozen gray Amazon trucks leaving this thing, and they're, I know that they're packed to the, to the gills with stuff, and so people just started ordering from those places, and then, you know, this is what happens, is they consolidated a lot of jobs, because they knew that they could get more profitability through their online services, and so they could pay their drivers instead of paying 17, they were paying 18, and then when, the, when COVID hit, you couldn't go out to a restaurant anymore, Cisco couldn't apply these, you know, employ these people to bring cases of eggs. You know, and, and cases of flour because no one was order, ordering them, so they couldn't keep them on the payroll. So they let them go. But guess who wasn't slowing down? Amazon. Amazon, Walmart, they were ramping up. They made out like bandits. So they started hiring more and more drivers. Now, if you're a driver who got let go by a large scale food distributor and Amazon wants to hire you for a dollar more or two dollars more, well, what are you going to do? And then later on, when the wave corrects itself and everything washes back in, and now restaurants are like, we're ready for our stuff. You think they're going to jump ship at Amazon? Now they're making $21 an hour. Do you think they're going to come back to your place to make 18 because of like the, the notion of like family or like uh, like loyalty? Like, No, you didn't show them loyalty, so they were gone. 
Mm-hmm. And then that, that cascades down to the restaurant, and same thing with chefs. They're having shortages of chefs because a lot of chefs moved into things like landscaping or consulting or catering, and they made great stuff. I know a lot of students that graduated our program that started doing, they set up LLCs and started renting out ghost kitchens mm-hmm. and doing meal service. You know, you could call them for an $11 meal, and the next morning they'd drop off your meal, and it was great, you know? Explain what a ghost kitchen is, because some people might not know what that term is. So a ghost kitchen is effectively like, you know, your favorite restaurant has the cool dining room and the bar, and the back they have the kitchen. Well, imagine if you took off the kitchen and just plopped it somewhere else. It literally is a kitchen with no dining room, almost like exclusively takeout, and there's absolutely no storefront to display there's no like outward marking that you oh this is my favorite place like that's probably just a warehouse that has you know hookups to a gas line and a hood system mm-hmm. so they started off with like a long time ago the first ones were like churches you know they used them on saturday nights and sundays for their big potlucks but during the week you know fridays and saturdays they'd be open so caterers would rent them out so you'd have a ghost kitchen because they were inspected you know by food inspectors and stuff like that and then it became a thing where people would open up a little here and there or a restaurant would like maybe rent you some space on the days where they were closed. And then people started building these things for caterers. You know, like, we, I only need this catering space a couple of days a week. So I'd rent it out two or three. Well, I'll find someone else who wants to rent, rent it. And maybe a baker who bakes cookies and, you know, sends them across, you know, the nation. They'll rent them the other couple of days. So then they started setting up these big ghost kitchens that, you know, were places where people could just go, do their thing. When they're out, they're out. They take their, their name off of the, uh, the Grubhub Uber Eats thing and they're gone. Mm-hmm. When they sell out, they're done for the night, and then maybe tomorrow they go to the store, restaurant depot, and they buy a bunch more wings, put themselves back up, say we're open for business again, and sell one-off day stuff, like, you know? So some of these places have gone gone on to have really, really great reputations. You know, like you did, like, a little pop-up Korean place, and people were saying, this is amazing. When are you guys going to open again? I was oh, I could probably do this next week, and then ne- next week, and next week, until finally people were like, you got to get a brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing is that it's offering people the ability like never before to have the, the, the seed money to start that, you know, because brick and mortar restaurants are not cheap. You know, it comes with a lot of liability, a lot of investment, and it's a lot of overhead. And you don't know if your concept's going to work. A lot of restaurants fail. Imagine if you could rent a ghost kitchen for $1,000 a month and have no liability. You know, if it doesn't work out, you just say, I'm not going to pay my rent next month. And you just don't rent your slot and someone else rents it. And you just go back to being a telemarketer or something. Mm-hmm. And let's say it does work out. Now you know you have proof of concept. You go to a bank and say, hey, I was open for one month. I sold this much. Here's my food cost. Here's my overhead. The profitability is at this level. I prove I can get this done because I've done it before. They're going to be way more interested in that. So, yeah, ghost kitchens are really, really cool. Yeah, I agree. And maybe we haven't seen as many of them around here, but I'm thinking of, like, the local volunteer fire companies have – for many years, their kitchens were underutilized the majority of the time. And within the past couple of years, most of them have been snatched up by, you know, local food entrepreneurs. Caterers are the big one. Yeah. People open up a catering business and they say you can run out your hall for three days for prep and then one day for service. And then, they're, you know, they're out of there. Everyone makes out, you know, because I can make money off my catering gig. The, the fire company makes a little bit of money for using their stuff, which is... We all know that the fire companies need the money, so mm-hmm. it's, it's a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about Elite, which is not in Fountain Hill, but it's very close by. It's a good neighbor. <laughs> uh, 
Absolutely. It's technically in Salisbury Township, a Bethlehem address, you know, the drill. Fountain Hill itself, I guess, has never really had much of a restaurant scene per se, sort of because it's so close to Bethlehem. What are your thoughts about the future of restaurants in Fountain Hill? Do you have any favorites there? or any? Is there anything you'd love to see come into the area? So I remember when Lorenzo's opened up on Broadway. That used to be, I forget what it was called, but it was like a like a, an auto parts store when hmm. I was growing up. And when Lorenzo's, I'm not sure if Lorenzo's was actually the one that came in and did it first or somebody else did it first and it didn't work out. But I remember when Lorenzo's started to kind of open up, I was like, this is... This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Like, we're going to have a pizza place in Fountain Hill, and that, that's going to end it all. You know? And it really was like a transition for me, though, because like, honestly, like having a pizza place in Fountain Hill was just incredible, and that was really, really cool. And I started to think about that. Like, we don't really have a whole lot of places around here. At one point in time, I was trying to get some people together. This is before I got my job in Northampton. I was trying to get some people together to buy the host company property, I wanted to do a, a brewery and restaurant up there because it had tons of parking, beautiful views of Fountain Hill. And I wanted to do something that was very, very Fountain Hill. And like, I'm very oh, proud of being awesome. Yeah, right? And I think about like, when I grew up, a lot of people walk to places. And like, for example, uh, there's a Game Time. Like, so Game Time just opened up not too long ago. I'll get, I'll get to them later. But that used to be like Benner Street Pub or whatever. And before that, was it was something else. And it goes all the way back. And people used to just like, you know, the husband and wife on a Friday night would get a babysitter and they'd walk down there, they'd have some Clams Casino and have, have a martini and just be able to hang out. And it, that to me was a place where you got to see your neighbors and talk to them and say hello. And that really kind of galvanized our sense of community in the same way that the park did it for kids. You know, restaurants provide you that opportunity and without being too weird about it, you know, a bar specifically, some place where you can get just a, a little bit of alcohol, just like People start to get talking and, you know, hey, I'll pick up your tab. You know, thanks for cutting my grass the other week while I was out of town. And you see a lot more of that kind of stuff happening when you have restaurants. I think it needs more of that. So when game time came in and they started doing some renovations, and I've been there, and they did a lot of work to it. It looks mm-hmm. beautiful inside. I wish them all the best. I really, really hope that they have, they have a thing, you know, I, I hope they become an institution. Because I think we need places like that where someone can just go and get a beer or get... Again, an order of pierogies. My inner fat man is like craving pierogies right now. I don't know why. But just to go and hang out and talk about these things, you know. And uh, people on council, like I'm on council obviously, people on council have been talking about it. We were talking about having like an event at game time just to be like, you know, as a council we should be supporting this business. And at the same time, like we could, the whole council could come out and just kind of hang out, talk to people. And people want to come and like, you know, maybe eat some pierogies and say, hey, listen – What's the deal with this this road construction with UGI? When's this gonna When's this, this gonna storm stop? Stormwater. Stormwater. What's going on? And, and be able to like talk in a, in a way that isn't so confrontational because I think a lot of the meetings, especially the way like the, the dais is set up and the audience is oh, you're back here, it's very binary. It's very like yeah us and you, but like the truth is everyone thinks. I mean, if you read any of the stuff in the groups, everyone thinks that council is a bunch of crooks and that all the management are just swindling the money and. At the end of the day, like literally everybody on council lives in Fountain Hill and we all are so happy to be residents of Fountain Hill and I'm just a regular guy. I didn't go to corruption school. I didn't get my major in how to swindle tax money. I don't make any money basically from Fountain Hill. We make a small paycheck and I spend it all on the borough, whether it's through gift certificates or or pizza at Lorenzo's probably mostly, and La Coquita, the, the Colombian place there in the strip mall. 
I spend all of my money that I get from the borough. I think we get like a hundred dollars, something like that. I spend it all in the borough, hundred percent. And we're not any sort of different people. We're just people who live on a street in your borough and care just as much about the roads and the taxes as you do. Cause they don't give me a free voucher on taxes. You know, right. I've had to be in budget sessions where we voted to increase taxes that I was going to have to pay the next year. And people think that because I'm on borough council, that if I vote for a tax increase, I get, I get to stay with the old you one. You get like a waiver. Yeah. I don't, I don't get that. So, I mean, we're constantly trying to do things and you know, some of us are in contact, you know, we just will message each other on Facebook and just say, Hey, like, what do you think about this? Is there any way we can get some support going for X and Y and Z, you know, and things could change and we can move through some different things. And at the end of the day, we're just regular people who just really, really want to make sure that Fountain Hill is being guided by people who love it and care about it. And I wouldn't mind if somebody else had my seat as long as they cared about Fountain Hill as much as I do. And that's uh, when I was running against the person who held my position before. His name was Fran Ferenson. He's a former mayor. When I walked around Fountain Hill and talked about people, they said, "Hey, you're running against Fran Ferenson. Like, you know, what do you, what do you think about him?" And I said, "I think I think he's a great candidate. I think I think he's a good guy. I think he, he served Fountain Hill well." And like, well, then why should I vote for you? I think I, I think I care just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. That's it. I would not. I'd never say a bad word about the man. You know, mm-hmm. and if he would have beat me, I would not have punched a pillow and screamed. You know, screamed into the darkness. I would I would have been happy because I know that he cares about Fountain Hill. He always did. He always will. And. Everyone up on the on the on the dais when you see them up there, people always have their things about oh so and so is a crook or so and so has got a bad agenda. Like everyone up there, really cares about Fountain Hill. Just sometimes we have kind of some differences in how we think that things should be run. And off, oftentimes, you'll you know after the thing, I'll call somebody and say hey I really didn't I really didn't agree with you today. I really didn't think that that was handled correctly. Or I really wish you would have voted on my side for this. But at the end of the day. It's all about just making sure that the ship is being guided in the right direction and that Fountain Hill is as good as it was for me, you know, for other generations after me. So Well said, well said. And and I mean I don't want to get too much into Fountain Hill politics, but I will say that I think part of the reason the public some people in the public think that is because certain people within local government or employees have, you know, stoked fears. Sure. At times, and I would say that, like, just for the benefit of the doubt, a lot of people have stoked fears. A lot of people have gotten, like, you know, made things really, really huge deals, and people like to make things huge deals because they feel very passionately about it. So I won't, I won't fault anybody for having an opinion that is very, very strong, even if it's against mine, because all it does is show their passion, you know, for what they're doing. Now, I do I think that they're going about it the right way all the time. No. In fact, I'd venture to say most of my, my counterparts on Borough Council probably don't like a lot of the things of the views that I hold, and that's completely fine. But they respect me, and you know they give me respect when we talk, and I do the same thing. I don't interrupt them, and I won't down-talk them when people ask me about them. We all just have different feelings about how things should be run. I'm a person who believes in, in cooperative, you know, talking through things. I think we do that far too little in the borough. I think that public input is a big thing. I think that maybe having some people come out to meetings, like usually the problem is everyone wants to come up to a meeting when they're angry, you know? Mm-hmm. Taxes are going up 10 billion percent, you know? Oh, well I have to come out and tell them, give them a piece of my mind. Well, why don't you just come out like when we're talking about recycling? Why don't you, why don't you wanna come out and like, when we started talking about trying to set up like a regular, a regular thing for blood drives in the borough, why don't you come out for stuff like that? And just say, hey, you know what? That's a good idea. I like how you think, you know, because we have some regulars who just come out and just they, they just want to keep up with the borough. For a while, they were streaming things on Facebook. I think it's a great idea. It's been my opinion since I took office that 
I think all of the meetings should be televised on the official borough website. Yes. I, I think that they should be streamed. I think that they should be stored. I think we should have access to them. I think it helps with things like accountability, and I think it also helps with communication. Some people work night shifts, and they're never going to get to a, a borough council meeting. Some people don't have any access on the weekdays, you know, and there's talk about holding stuff on Saturdays. And actually, Mayor Gifford, who she and I, like, don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. She came up with a great idea that once a year we had a Saturday down at the St. Luke's Pavilion called the State of the Borough, and people could just come out and just talk and just say, hey, listen, I'm really disappointed the taxes went up again. Or, hey, I really like it. I like it better when we had two-day-a-week trash pickup, you know? As long as people were being constructive about it and we set, like, a kind of precedent that people could talk rather than just being angry, they could just come and voice their opinions, then we could have some progress. So, and of course, have some munchies. Yeah, about to say, like, have some munchies. But maybe, maybe order some stuff from Lorenzo's, some stuff from Game Time. Mm-hmm. And then maybe one day, up on the hill where the hosey was, a nice little microbrewery with some mozzarella sticks in the menu, you know, and pierogies. Oh, outdoor seating there would be phenomenal. I mean, like, that view is great. You're right over the thing, and it's elevated, and it's just unobstructed. It's just beautiful. You see all of Fountain Hill. Mm-hmm. You see St. Ursula's. The spire kind of just, like, draws your eye in. It would be a great place. I think currently the plan is that they want to put in homes there. Tower homes. Yeah. We wrote about that. Which is like, back. okay, I mean, that is what it is. Unideal to me. But at the same time, like, those people will get great views. And then it means that we're going to have, you know, 48 or 50 more residents of Fountain Hill that can be proud to, you know, where they live. And so be it. You know, we'll, we'll, work, on, we'll work on the microbrewery somewhere else. Maybe at, at the, uh, the former Via place. Oh, good idea. I yeah. always I always had a dream, you know, and this is a secret. Hopefully he eventually hears this, but I was always having the dream of Bond Brewing on Southside. I want to talk to Sam, and I want to have him move <laughs> in there and start a canning line in there. Your beer's great. People love your beer. Why not go into production of it? You know, like, that's what Lost Tavern's doing. You know? Yeah. And they, honestly, that's another great success story. I love their beer. It's great. And they started doing stuff, and like, you know, grab some six packs to go, and eventually they're going to have big large-scale distribu- you know, distribution networks because the beer is good and people want good beer. If someone could move in there and have a canning line, because that basement has pretty high ceilings and they have a loading dock and it's right off of Broadway. If anyone's listening to well, this... Well, it's been on our to-do list to try and get Sam on the podcast, so we'll be sure to... Uh... I, I will give him some hell. And <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure that he understands that there's a need. Because he's, he's one of my favorite guys. Big, big investment into... Southside Bethlehem, and that just because to, to me, I grew up in Fountain Hill, but like you know, Southside Bethlehem was just a, you know it was attached, and we walked through there all the time. So yeah, anyone who's going to invest in our in our community, anything south of the river, I'm cool with. You know, the north side, they have their own community. Let them figure out their stuff, and I'm, they they can be proud of their part. But for me, I'm really really proud of anything south of the river. I just I want it to be connected, whether it's Lehigh, South Bethlehem, you know, all the way down to to Steel City. If you're south of the river. Let's be friends. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will say, though, that Fountain Hill's sense of identity over the years, I think, has been shaped by the neighborhood establishments mm-hmm. that we don't have as many of now. So to have them back would would be a benefit in that sense. Oh, yeah. Uh, because without them, Fountain Hill just kind of morphs into South Bethlehem, and, you know, it's not... There was a so a long time. One of my thoughts was, I wanted to install arches over the, the the boundaries on Broadway and Delaware that says "Welcome to Fountain Hill." And it turned out it was a complete pipe dream because apparently it's a state road and right. you can't block them. But 
we've always had that that sort of thing. We had like a, kind of like an identity crisis. Is that we don't we're not assertive enough as a, with our identity beyond the idea that we have a good neighborhood. Beyond that, like it just bleeds right into South Bethlehem, and the other side just bleeds right into that that stringy part of Salisbury, like where it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> spreading out, right? So like people. People come through Fountain Hill from Allentown. They go all the way through Fountain Hill to the south side, and then they have no idea they just went through our municipality. Like, they have right. no idea. Because what sets us apart, you know? It's neighborhood. It's community. It's, it's, it's being connected with, with our neighbors and understanding that we help each other out. But how do you see that when you're driving 35 down Broadway? You, you don't. And hopefully everyone's driving 35 down Broadway. <laughs> it's really difficult to, to have an identity, you know, without things like that. I mean, there's been some talks in the group too. My friend Katie had brought it up. She thinks that we need a nice, cool breakfast spot in the borough. Oh, and yeah. I'll tell you what, if I could get a place in the borough that made scrambled eggs or farmer's omelets and, and pancakes, you know, like, listen, I, I think that's a gold mine. So if anyone's listening to this and they, they have some time to kill, a breakfast spot in Fountain Hill would be great. Totally agree with that. I just, I mean, I just got back from a vacation in Ocean City, New Jersey, which has like 25 easily fantastic breakfast spots. Yeah. Of course, it is a resort town, but we just need one. You know? Yeah, just one. We're not, we're not asking for a 10,000 seat restaurant. We just, we just, we need, I think we need a, like, I always said, I think that Fountain Hill needs a cool place to go for a drink and maybe a quesadilla and, and game time moved in. So check mark. Mm-hmm. Cool. Great. We definitely need something. That, we need something that, like an activity for people to do. We need something that people can, can roll in and do X and Y and Z. And we need a breakfast place, something like that. I think those things would bring people in. And I think a little bit of, of work on our kind of our business corridor would be a really really good idea. I don't think personally that Fountain Hill is inviting enough to businesses because mm-hmm. of the fact that our tax rate is very high, and we don't have a whole lot of space for businesses. Plus, our parking restrictions are, are practically prohibitive. So. We see a lot of businesses turning into residential homes. They're splitting them up. You know, this used to be a, you know, a pet store. Now it's a two-bedroom apartment. This used to be a place where people you could go to get, you know, to get their hair done. And now it's it's just a one-bedroom apartment that's detached from the house. And that's going to continue to happen unless we actually have some some proactive change in how we try to court businesses. You know, so well, the the Via building is huge. So it would be cool to see that maybe repurposed as several different businesses. It's also built. Pretty strongly. When I was trying to get someone, you know, trying to get Sam to uh, do that thing, I never actually ended up talking to him about it just because he uh, he ended up buying the... Uh, the Bavarian the, Tavern. Yeah, Bavarian Tavern. But I looked around the place and I'm like, this place is built pretty heavy because it was an old sewing factory or garment factory or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. The thing that at the base of it, thick, thick walls, industrial electric running into it, I, I think it would just be killer for somebody. If it's a catering place with, you know, because they, they have parking right there. If it's you know if it's a place for wedding receptions or if it's a place a, a canning factory for bond brewing, I think it's an, a golden opportunity. I think there's two apartments on top of it too, mm-hmm. so like that's a good building. Someone just needs to snatch that up. You know, someone needs to get on that. I think we'll we're gonna need to do a story like what should go here. You know, to, yeah. to sort of like get the community talking and positive flow of, of ideas. Yeah, I mean, because that information, I mean, a lot of people are, are going to view your content and say, there's 13 comments here that all say the same thing. Like, why couldn't we do that? You know, people who own businesses or have, have the, the money and the collateral to put up to actually get these things going, they needed data, right? So 
that's how you get the communication going. It's not going to be you know two two neighbors whispering to each other and no one gets to hear it. You know. And the bonus is like I get to chuckle when you know somebody says Wegmans or you know the world's smallest Wawa, even though Wawa is right next door. You know, like. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be very Fountain Hill to have two Wawas, two separate Wawas. That would be hilarious. That'd be very, very Fountain Hill. But I honestly think that that building is a really, really cool opportunity for someone to move in and do some things. You take a look at like Seven Sirens on Southside and how they transformed that space, and that space was like literally the opposite. That was not built for what they're using it for. Right. And it looks like they did a really good job with it. You know, they, they built it pretty, pretty sturdy, and it looks like they have some people going on there. You know, and. So why couldn't we do the same thing with Via? You know, yeah. I think a little bit of, of a little bit of of some imagination, and hopefully at some point in time, if if council would feel particularly smart, I would say even some sort of incentives for that for someone to move in to make an investment there because I think it would pay us back tenfold with businesses being brought into that place and creating revenue, but also things that are jobs within walking distances if it's you know depending on what kind of businesses they are we could be you know employing this local 16 year olds who don't maybe have a car yet saving up for one they could walk down to the place and put in a, a shift or two you know mm-hmm. so i i like stuff like that though i think we should be courting businesses rather than pushing them away with our our, our passive you know kind of uh, hurdles fountain hill is very walkable we just need more places to to walk to, walk to. to. and yeah. also i would love to see some type of pedestrian improvements along the 378 corridor because it can be challenging to get across wyandotte into south bethlehem it's just so much traffic and and i, I don't mm. know what the answers are but no. Five Points is honestly like when I was growing up it was bad but it's getting worse and worse because it's such a hub people take 378 and they go right up the thing if they're going back home to to Center Valley or whatever you know or Fountain Hill or other parts of Southside Bethlehem they go right through 378 and that because it's a five point intersection there's practically no time where uh, you know a, a crosswalk will have no chance of, of being complicated by drivers you know mm-hmm. So people have to, they push the button and they wait for the signal, but even when the signal happens, there's still a chance that someone's making a right or, or a left there and cutting their thing off. Every morning when I go that way to get to 22, I get the green light to make the left and I go and there's always someone crossing the street there because it's the most advantageous time for them to do it. And I always think to myself, you know, it's really a shame that this person is not given better solutions for that, you know? Pedestrian traffic is not really prioritized in our area, but in America as a whole, because we transition into drivable spaces rather than walkable spaces. I mean, we, you know, Fountain Hill used to have the trolley line, and that's why all these small businesses on, on Broadway never needed to have parking, because you got off the trolley, you got your eggs and your cream and your sugar, you got back in the trolley and you went home, and you walked the rest of the way. It wasn't a big deal. Now, everyone has a car or two, and we have issues with the amount of parking that we have. Well, that's, that's no shocker, because mm-hmm. we didn't need it before, and no one pre-planned. So now our density is very, very high. You take a look at, like, Russell Avenue. They struggle for parking every single day. People on Russell are constantly coming to us complaining about things and looking for solutions, and the, the solutions are just not there. You know, we take a look at things, and that whole street is just clogged, because they were built when these houses are going to be single-car houses, and if that. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone even had one, but let's say that they, everyone did. They were all single car houses. And most of those are single family homes, which is great. But what happens about the one who is subdivided into two apartments? Now it's a three or a four car house. That takes up now four houses. And there's nothing behind them to park because it's just backyards and hills. So it's the same thing on, on Moravia, the uh, the south side of Moravia. 
there's no places to park there, you know? So people have to struggle to find spaces. And it's really a bummer, but it's because we weren't prioritizing pedestrian stuff when we grew. And right now I think we're just getting a little too big for our bridges. So well, I know some of the secret parking spaces. But oh, yeah. We won't talk about those. Yeah, you should t- tell me after this, this thing's done recording. <laughs> I love some secret recordings. There's some secret parking spaces. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, they, they're around. No, I mean, there's just so much. We could talk about Fountain Hill for hours. Yeah. The history and, you know, but we both care passionately about it. And it's all consortium. We are demonstrating that by covering the borough. Yeah as best as we can it, for a number of years was not really being very very well covered Agreed. by local media and so we started covering council meetings again local business openings and part of that is just because i live there i mean i want to know what's going of on course. i know a lot of other people do too and you can't rely on a facebook group that's privately administered to provide you know accurate information all the time that's, you just can't. I'm, I'm currently the, the acting admin of the Complainers of Fountain Hill, and I, I have it so that basically anybody can post anything at, at any time because I've seen things like when things were getting shut down, we had that, that incident on, what was it, Cherokee Street where the guy was holed up at the house, and mm-hmm. no, no one knew what was going on. I don't have any of the things on there, the security measures, to block people from posting because I believe in the free exchange of information. There's another group there that has some of the things are kind of blocked behind approval, and sometimes they won't go up for three or four days. And I think that's specifically because of fear of what people are posting, you know? Mm -hmm. And in my group, I have to be much more active in deleting things because people will post things that are inappropriate, and I have to have a wall of questions. When you went up membership, you had to answer questions, you know? And if you live in Fountain Hill, there's simple questions. It's very, very easy. But, you know, you got to make sure that people, I do my investigations and stuff like that. When someone applies for a membership and then they don't answer the three questions, I go to their profile. Where do they live? How long have they had a Facebook for? And if, it, if they just started it yesterday and they have no information, well, they're going to get denied. But if there's somebody who has a longstanding thing and maybe they say they live in Bethlehem, I'll message them and say, hey, why didn't you answer the three questions? And they'll say, you know, I actually don't know the answer to those three questions, but... I'm a home health aide who works with someone who lives in Fountain Hill. I just want to keep all the information. Well, of course you can come in. No big deal, you know? And that's all, what it's all been about is just free and open communication. And there's also, there's been a push for a long time. Our former president had pushed for it, and I'm still very much interested in it, having an official borough Facebook page that where comments are turned off. It's not meant to be a place where people can air out their grievances about why they think that, you know, I'm the most handsome member of council <laughs> because everyone knows that that's true. Maybe Phil. Maybe he's. Maybe, maybe he might beat me out, but I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> but just a place where we can exchange stuff and people people can like get information quickly because a lot of people are not using the website and we keep talking about it. We have this website and it's great. It's fine, but people aren't going to go to the website and check for information because it's not getting updated at seven o'clock at night. It's not getting updated at nine o'clock p.m. when something's happening. There's a fire on X Y Z Street. Please be you know, clear of the area. That stuff's not going out. So there's always been and that you push. Can tag your local your local media, you know, and there you go. so that we we're aware of it and then mm-hmm. we can help get the word out. That's that's ideally what I think we should be doing. I think right now people are very, very afraid of having a Facebook page because of the liability that comes with it. We have a social media policy that we worked on and I think it's really, really good. And I think that we could easily do this. I think we just need some support. A lot of people are very apprehensive. So check out Hellertown Burroughs page. I think they do a good job I, with I their do, Facebook page. I do too. I, and I think it would be just as and easy as really, that. And there's really 
no drama on it. I mean, if if we're posting things about hey, trick or treat's going to be this day, or hey, don't forget, you know, water bills. Is there is there a rain date for it? Yeah. yeah. Is there a rain date? Is, or is there no rain date? <laughs> dun dun. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, I I think it, it it's an easy way. It's completely free for us to do yes all it requires is somebody on council or somebody that is designated by council to be monitoring the page and administering it and we've had many volunteers to actually do that I, I myself volunteered I'm on recreation committee and I had proposed that we change that to recreation and public outreach so that it, it would you know we could do that so we'll see we'll see what happens some people are not really interested in it so we'll see well we kind of moved from talking about food and the restaurant industry and and Northampton Community College into Fountain Hill, which is all good. But I, before we close out, I want to sort of go back a little bit to the food topic. Sure. And have you maybe highlight a little bit more about how you're helping students, especially in this time of uncertainty within the restaurant industry and the job market sure. as a whole. I'm sure that that's a focus of the program and then you know, maybe you can tell our listeners more about how they can learn about the culinary arts program and Hampton Winds online. Sure. So first things first, COVID was such a big deal. I mean, it's, it's been a big deal for everybody, obviously. We wanted to make sure that we could continue to offer great education during COVID because, it, you know, people's lives didn't start, you know, did, didn't stop passing by when COVID happened. You know, they, people got out of out of high school and they were worried about, can I go to college? You know, is this gonna be available to me? Are things gonna be shut down? So we instituted a lot of protocols. We do daily temp checks. We have questionnaires that people get filled out on. And we also have a lot of back and forth with our students about their exposure rates. And we talk, talk to them very, very bluntly. If you're gonna go out to a party with a whole bunch of people and they're unmasked and you're, you know, and you're in a situation like that, if you get COVID, you know, our whole thing shuts down. And that's not just me or you, it's the whole team. Once we get exposed to COVID, we have protocols in place that would basically put all of us in isolation and the culinary program would just be paused. Because of that, we've had really, really, a, a, our students have become very, very, not strict, but they've been very, very vigilant about it. And people have been great. We mask up the entire time. We have hand sanitizer all over the place. We have disposable masks anytime someone needs one. We have hand washing stations that are now no touch so that you can wash your hands fully from start to finish get a paper towel and you know dry off your hands with no interaction with an actual surface. And it's awesome. And that's how it should be. I'm proud to say that we've had some instances where people have gotten exposures to COVID and they are able to talk to us and our staff and our director and we go through it and we've, we've made alternate paths for them. We say, listen, you know, you need to finish this class out or else you can't move on to the next class. However, what we're gonna do is we're gonna put your grade in as an incomplete. And when you're done with the program, you'll come back and you'll finish up one more week and you know, then you'll have your thing and everything will be great. So it's a, it's a little bit of like a kind of, not a concession, but a, a way around this thing, rather than saying you failed this class because you got COVID. And then people, you know what they, what they would do is they just wouldn't tell us, you know? Mm-hmm. We've, we've given them an opportunity to, to let us know, hey, listen, I think I might've been infected. Can I, you know, can, can, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take a week, I'm gonna get tested, get my results. And if the results are negative, we bring them back, we catch them up and we try to get them, you know, graduated in that class. If it's positive, they have a mandatory 10-day and then a retest when they're done, and then they can go back to the program and we'll figure it out. And we've had, our success rates has, have been incredibly, incredibly good. We've, we've had no instances of anyone getting COVID in our program whatsoever. And that's through vigilant, vigilant 
protocols, masking, hand washing, and spacing out, socially distancing. We've been marking off stations for students, and that's where they work, six feet apart, stay masked, and we've been really, really good with that. Now, as far as the job market is concerned, that's that's a whole different story. People are looking for jobs. All, people are looking for guys to fill jobs all the time. That being said, it's a great time to be a chef because if you wanted to work at that restaurant for a long time, I promise you that they're hiring right now. We just had a, a student graduate in August that wanted to work at the Shelby really, really badly. You know, she loved Chef Christian and his ideology and the way that he worked with food. And she said, I'm going to go down there and stage for a day and see how I like it. And he offered her a job on the spot. And after he saw her work, he was just like, you know what, you need to work here. And I have people right now, I have two people in Disneyland. I've got people at the Shelby. I've got people working at Kome, country clubs, mm-hmm. like all over the place. And, you know, if I'm, I'm just trying to get better relationships with everybody, I'm currently trying to find some candidates to work at Molinari's because I, Molinari's is like one of my favorites. And I have two people I think are just perfect for the job. And they're, they're kind of playing their cards right now. They're trying to see what's, what's out there. So it changed everything. It really did. But at the same time, it doesn't need to be a a bookended thing like everything changed and that's it. We we're we're not working like that anymore. We're we're trying to be proactive and we we're we're still getting candidates into good jobs and we're still providing quality education at Northampton, fully on site with a lot of precautions in place. We've been extraordinarily successful, and I mm-hmm. think that that's that's to our leadership and to our team for being just really 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 proactive and having really great vision. We, we pivoted in about three weeks' time. When they said that we could, we could have hybrid classes, we had all of our syllabuses or syllabi done, all our protocols written in place, and we exceeded CDC guidelines and NRA guidelines, the National Restaurant Association. We exceeded those. We did. We had logs, temperature logs. We had spacing. We had a whole bunch of things to mitigate risk. And because of that, we haven't had a single case of COVID in our program, knock on wood. So temperature logs for people right now oh, for, the, for oh, the food oh we, we, we have temperature logs for, for food coming in the back door how long it's you know every day it's been it's been in the cooler right. when it's finished we have all that but for people yes that, that's the big thing we have we talked to medical professionals we found out what the what the the cutoff would be for a fever that would be you know example you know would kind of exemplify covid or, or you know, give us an example that someone had covid and we set up protocols every day you get temped Every day you wear a mask 100%. If your mask breaks or something happens, you need a new mask. We've got replacements for it. We don't allow people to work too closely together. And, you know, even when you're eating, if you're eating, you separate completely. We offer you a completely different place to go eat so you can take your mask off and do your thing. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we've been, you know, we've been able to provide continuing education for these people. We didn't stop. We didn't stop for, you know, for anything, really. And what about Hampton Winds, the restaurant operating during COVID? So we, we made a decision internally that we were going to back down our, our maximum seating capacity and back down our hourly capacity to make sure people that wanted to come out and had, you know, they wanted a dining experience that was like Hampton Wins before, we're still going to have that opportunity. So we took a hit on, obviously, on income, but that was not really our main priority. Our main priority is student outcomes. So I want a functioning restaurant. And if that means that I have to go from 50 to 30 people in a night, at a maximum, then that's no problem because I can. I'd rather have my students get 30 people of happy customers than 50 people who are who feel unsafe because they're not quite sure what's going on and people are soda can or tuna can next to each other in seats. We space them out. Our front of the house manager will put a table comes in over here, then a table comes in over here, and they have a lot of space to work. Our renovation really helped that obviously, 
It's much more spacious, much more airy. All of our surfaces are hard surface and non-porous. We have an amazing facilities team that comes in every single night and sanitizes everything. We sanitize all of our forks, knives, menus, our tables, our chairs. We do all of that. And mm. we have outdoor seating. If someone doesn't feel comfortable being in an indoor space, we have expanded seating now. So we have five or six tables outside that you can use for either lunch or dinner, depending on, you know, what time of day it is. And obviously your, your willingness to put up with a mosquito or two. And then right now in the fall, it's just been, it, those are the best seats in the, in the place. Oh, yeah. We have like nice uh, string lights and people just kind of come and just, you know, eat, eat a good dinner, right? So we wanted to make sure that people were able to come to our, our restaurant and eat and experience Hampton Winds the way that we want them to experience it without having to worry about the peripherals of COVID and the complications of being sat next to someone, you know. we I think we, you know, not to toot our, our, our horn, but I'm very proud of what we did. I, I think we did a really, really good job making sure that people stay comfortable. Again, it harkens all back to, to service. Mm-hmm. I'm not making you a grilled filet mignon with asparagus and bourrelets. I'm making you an experience. And if you're in the middle of a whole bunch of people and you know you know that you have a mom who is immunocompromised, you're not, you're not gonna feel comfortable. We're not about that. It's all about service. And we make people wanna come back because we take care of them. And when they look at their silverware, they don't have to think, how long has this been sitting on the table? No, we set it when you know right before you come in, so it's not out in the open. We have it in sanitized containers all the time. You know, mm-hmm. it's put away the right way. It's sealed. It's locked so that no one can tamper with it. No one can just grab stuff and be messy with it. I think we're really doing it the right way, and that's not to say that restaurants are not doing that. I think I just wanted we wanted to make sure for ourselves that we were setting standards that we could be really proud of, and then when people came to dine with us, they they, they could just kind of take all that that stress and anxiety about the dining experience and just leave it at the door. You know, right. you can pick it up on the way out if you want. You want to, you want to take it with you, no problem, but you're not going to bring it in here. You'll feel really comfortable because we're doing it the right way. Right. Well, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, a teaching standard needs to be a, a high standard. Yeah. If you don't learn correctly, you're never going to be able to put into practice, you know, safety protocols. And, and I think that the safety, you know, during COVID, you know, even though, I mean, food safety is a huge, you know, part of running a restaurant, working in a restaurant, yeah. period. Yeah. So it never hurts to be, you know, on the side of caution. We, we have every single student that comes through has to get Serve Safe certified even before they go into the kitchen. They can't touch a single knife or a cutting board until they're Serve Safe certified. And every single student has to go through a rotation in front of the house as well to interact with customers. And, and that, I think, is a thing that we push very very hard because we want to make sure that people understand there's a connection between your you know the food in the back and the customer's happiness and you know we're just the vehicles for making that happiness happen so yeah i'm really proud of what we do well and we'll absolutely include the link to to the story we, we ran about hampton winds reopening in the description for this episode that way our listeners can see photos of the sure. restaurant and and learn more there are also links within the story to the website for hampton winds great and the culinary arts program on the ncc website cool that's that's the best ones yeah <laughs> also if you want to follow hampton winds on facebook we used to do a lot of virtual stuff where we did kind of cook-alongs and stuff like that and and demos on there we also do a lot of cool little things just to find out what people are up to and you know we do quirky things like cats versus dogs and peanut butter and jelly versus ice cream or whatever but Mm. we also have we have things when we have special events you know we post on that 
web or that that Facebook page first. So if anyone wants to follow Hampton Winds on uh, on Facebook, that's yeah. the best place to get new information. Definitely, I, I would encourage everybody to do that. Thank you so much, Will, for taking the time to come on our well, thank podcast. Thank you for having me. And I feel like we just scratched the surface with with what we talked about, but if we'd you, love to have you back sometime. If you ever want to talk food, I'm I'm always ready. I do, and we'll have to do a part two so we can talk uh, about tofu. And I would love to talk about <laughs> tofu. I would love to talk about tofu. And then we'll follow that up maybe with like a little taste taste test. And we could do that. We could do that. <laughs> I'm not a tofu skeptic, but I'm not as passionate about it as you are either. So, I'm, but I'm willing to have an open mind. I would say I'm borderline overly passionate about it. <laughs> so. I'm willing to throw down on tofu. You're not like flying to Japan just to pick out certain tofus. I, I did go to Japan right before COVID. Oh, really? Uh, I, yeah, I had a really good time in Japan. Good for you. But if I had to pick something from Japan that I think that should get brought over here is high-quality miso. Shout out to high-quality miso. I don't think we have a whole lot of it here, but we'll, we'll do that for part two. Yes, Why I love like Japanese miso? food in general. And oh, we should talk then. Yes. My college roommate is Japanese hmm. and, and lives in Tokyo. So I probably would have been there for the Olympics if it hadn't been for COVID. But <laughs> someday, goals. Goals. Yeah. I spent six days in, to- in Tokyo in 2019. Nice. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Although I liked Osaka better. Better, Just, better city. They put so much like thought into presentation of oh, Japanese yeah. cuisine. I mean, maybe overboard in some cases. But yeah, I feel like some of like the, the kaiseki chefs that are making the kaiseki meals that, I mean, they look like just works of art. You know, that every every lotus root is peeled in a way to make it look appealing and beautiful and carrots are cut thinly and fanned and it's just beautiful. But, I mean, even my brother and I stayed in, in, a, in a neighborhood in Tokyo called Ueno or Taito City and they had a Lawson's on the corner, which is like basically like 7-Eleven. And even the little onigiri that they had were made so well and packaged so pretty. And they were $1.25. And I thought, you know, this this might be one of the coolest countries ever just because of the fact that, you know, this is a gas station practically. And they're, <laughs> and they're selling stuff that people back home would be like, this is a really nutritious, good thing. And it's presented well, you know? Right. So, I would not be afraid to get cocktail shrimp in a bus station in Japan. Oh no! So some of the so, uh, I had one of the, my best meals. We ate all over the place. We ate wagyu in Osaka. We went to Hiroshima and had like a a seventeen course sushi dinner with like tempura. It was amazing. But some of the best meals I had were the train stations right before we got on the bullet train. We get on the Shinkansen and there's these old ladies in stalls that sell like grilled chicken thigh over rice with like pickled vegetables on the side called sukemono. And it would cost like ten dollars, and I'm thinking this is gonna be not that great. And you get on the bullet train, and you're going a trillion miles an hour now, and you're eating this. And it's like, oh my god, this is great. And it, it, it it's it's like the equivalent of like a like a, a New York street dog, you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's that casual. But the flavor was just so incredible. The rice was like every grain was like a little dumpling. It was I, I can't even describe mm-hmm. it, but. They're, yeah, some of their best stuff was in what most people would consider shady. Like if I said, hey, we're going to go get dinner at an Amtrak station, what would you say? You know, you'd feel pretty bad about it. But in, to- in Tokyo, in, in Osaka, in Hiroshima, and in Kyoto, the train stations had the best food. It was incredible. Yeah. It was great. Wow. Well, we'll definitely talk more about that. Part two is coming yes. up. Yes. Thanks tuned. again. Thank you so much for having me.
No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Thank you.